Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm joined by Peter Alagona, author of The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities, published by University of California Press. Peter Alagona is a professor of environmental studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Peter Alagona, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Brady. Appreciate it. Uh, so, if you could um, begin by telling us a little about yourself. Uh, so, so I'll ask you first, how do you describe yourself to other academics? And then how do you describe yourself to sort of folks outside of academia? Sure. You know, I, I was trained as an environmental historian. And environmental historians study the relationships between people and nature over time, over historical time periods, so usually decades to to centuries, and they they study a, a lot of different kinds of topics, everything from uh, culture to um, ecological changes to politics and social movements. For me, what I've spent most of my career studying uh, is uh, the relationships between people and other creatures that we refer to as wildlife, uh, and that we've been referring to as wildlife for over a hundred years now. Uh, And so I've written a lot about uh, endangered species and endangered species conservation, uh, politics around that. I've written uh, about other kinds of unexpected interactions between uh, people and wild creatures. And recently, I've started thinking uh, a little bit more about the future uh, and less about some stories of, of decline, I guess you'd say, and more about kind of opportunities for positive for positive change. And, you know, some of the complexities involved with that. And so the book we're going to talk about today, uh, for me, is a part of that, uh, thinking about unexpected ecological changes that might bring um, opportunities as well as costs. Uh, And I also do work on um, uh, ecological restoration and species reintroduction as well, um, and putting that in a historical perspective. Uh, So my work and my work, I try to bring uh, deep historical perspectives and interdisciplinary methods to the study of the relationships between people and wild creatures. All right, thank you. Um, so, so 
you begin the book by describing a, uh, I think, important bike ride that you took. Um, Could you describe that bike ride um, that you took after you finished your first book and sort of what realization you came to during and after that bike ride and how it impacted the writing of this book? Yeah, you know, this was one of these experiences that only becomes significant as you look back at it over time. Uh, And so it appeals to me as a as a historian, but also thinking about um, the story of my own uh, academic intellectual interests. So going back to maybe about 2013 or so, uh, I was uh, finishing my my first book. I had worked really hard on it. It was, you know, as you're working on a first book, you're not only writing a book, you're trying to figure out how to write a book. And so it's a big, big challenge. And, and for me, it took a long time. And so I was feeling kind of exhausted. It was a Friday. I kind of just put the finishing touches on this work. And I decided, you know, it's one o'clock or two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm done. I'm going to take take the rest of the day off and and have a weekend of, of a little bit of R&R. And so at that point, I was um, I was living in a place where I could bike back and forth to work. And I hopped on my bike and I started riding at home. And I wasn't kind of thinking about too much. But about a mile or so, a couple miles into my ride, uh, as I was riding down this bike path through this suburban neighborhood with homes on either side of me and a little pitch and putt golf course off to one side and a kind of concrete lined, pretty ugly looking drainage canal over to the left, I saw an animal run across the path that I didn't immediately recognize. And it was maybe 100 yards ahead. And so as I approached it, I kind of slowed down and then I stopped right about where I thought Uh, It had crossed the path, and I looked into the bushes to the left, and there, only about maybe 10 or 15 feet away from me, I was staring at a bobcat. And, you know, I had seen bobcats a couple times before in the wild. I'd seen one in the wilderness area of the High Sierra, you know, John Muir Wilderness. I'd seen one on a ranch uh, on the central California coast, so beautiful and fairly rural or wild places. But this was the first time I had seen one in a city, in a suburb. And as I kind of looked at that animal, we kind of locked eyes for a minute. It seemed pretty uh, unperturbed by me, kind of slowly walked away after a minute. I was just captivated by the beauty of this creature. You know, it had the trademark kind of pointy tufted ears and it was like robust. It looked like a really healthy animal with this plush coat and these bright green eyes. And uh, it occurred to me that, you know, the work that I'd been doing uh, for the previous decade or so, which had focused largely, I thought, really on the relationships between people and wildlife, but was really focusing on people fighting with each other about conservation, debating issues, politics, and fighting over creatures that, because they're endangered, most people never really get to see. And here I was, on my way home, on this bike path, in this suburban area, and I came into contact with this uh, wild, beautiful predator. You know, and I think that a lot of other people have had this kind of experience. But for me, it was sort of a light bulb going off in my head because I realized that if I really wanted to learn something new about the relations between people and wildlife, between people and wild creatures, that maybe I should start thinking a little bit more about the creatures that people actually do see, that they actually see increasingly in their communities, that they run into in their daily lives and oftentimes are scared or exhilarated or excited, uh, but maybe don't quite know what to make of it. Why is that creature there? Why is it doing what it's doing? Why is it out in the middle of the day? Why is it in a suburb? And so this kind of set me off on this journey 
of studying urban wildlife. And I'll add one more thing to that story, which is that as soon as I started doing it, I start I kind of realized that personally, I had sort of replicated this long-term process in the history of science. For decades, ecologists really focused on studying wild or relatively pristine natural areas. You know, it's you can't swing a cat in Yellowstone National Park without hitting a biologist, you know? That's where these people go, and there are reasons for that. Um, some of the reasons are because maybe they just, uh, you know, that's why they got into the field to begin with, to be in those kinds of places. Some people also thought that to really understand nature, you have to go to places where it's least disturbed by people. But in recent years, over the past 20 years or so, more and more people have been turning to cities to study these unexpected ecosystems, these unexpectedly rich and diverse places that we've kind of built up around us, in some cases accidentally, as I talk about in the book. And so for me, this epiphany of seeing this bobcat was a lot like ecologists and environmental scientists in general coming to realize that urban areas had a lot to offer. Absolutely. Um, I, I often think uh, or thought when I was reading this book, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in Shenandoah National Park and, you know, I go hiking and I'm looking for all sorts of wildlife, you know, especially any sort of bear I might be able to see. And so often th- when I actually see a bear, it's when like I'm driving past, you know, <laughs> the forest to whatever the trailhead where like that's when the journey is supposed to begin. And that's when wildlife is supposed to introduce itself. Meanwhile, right, you like all stop, you know, car to car to car. And then everybody's like, oh, get out. There's a bear, you know, on the side of the road. <laughs> and it's just sort of this, this accidental sighting. Um, so, yeah, yeah your, your book, I think, rang true for me and my personal experience as well. Well, I think that there's this idea that's very common. It's, it's historically been common in fields like ecology, but it's also kind of culturally uh, common in the United States in particular. This idea that wild creatures belong in wild places. And that wild places look a certain way. You know, they're wilderness, they're rural, they're ranches in the West or high mountains in national parks or places like Shenandoah, you know, that that we can go to and identify as nature, you know, with a capital N. But I think that, you know, that's a very, um, that's an American kind of cultural view. That's a, a view in the history of science, but it's also a sort of human centric view. I don't think that wild creatures see it that way. What they see is not wilderness, which is kind of a cultural, aesthetic, historical idea. What they see, or urban areas, what they see is habitat. And so does a certain area, does a habitat have resources? Does it have uh, food? Does it have water? Does it have shelter? What are the potential benefits of going into a place like that, of living in a place like that, of foraging in a place like that? But also, what are the potential costs and risks? And so the creatures that we see out there in cities or in national parks are making those kinds of calculations. They're not making a judgment about what's wild versus what's civilized. And that's a really different way to look at it. And I think we'd understand them a lot better if we looked a little bit more through their eyes. Absolutely. Um, you know, just referencing sort of the concept of wilderness, I, I kept thinking of William Cronin's, um, you know, Trouble with Wilderness essay and how, you know, there, there's almost a genre, right, of, of environmental writing uh, that sort of asks the reader 
uh, ask the audience to sort of focus on the nature of the wild that is, you know, in your backyard or in, you know, outside of your apartment building or whatnot. And I think that's, that's a really uh, important lens to bring to sort of the study of the environment. As you know, right, 80% of people in the United States currently live in urban areas, right? So you are most likely going to interact with some sort of nature, some sort of wildlife, some sort of, you know, wilderness, if we want to use that term, in your daily life, if you are observing it, if you're paying attention to it. Well, right. And, you know, what are urban areas, you know, from the, through the eyes of, of wild creatures for some, kinds of wild creatures, urban areas are untenable uh, for various reasons. There are spaces where um, there's just too much risk. There there are too many challenges. They just can't live there for one reason or another. And we can talk more about those reasons if you'd like. But for other creatures, urban areas look like these enriched patches of habitat, uh, you know, places with lots of food, with lots of water. And so it makes sense that we would be drawing animals into these places, you know, for the same reasons that people are in these places, you know, because urban areas are in many ways uh, culturally, but also resource uh, rich. But that's not the whole story, right? Because if you think about it, if you think, for example, about migratory birds, you know, there are, there are migratory birds that spend their summer on the Arctic plain in places like the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. And their winters in the neotropics, in tropical rainforests, in places like Panama and Costa Rica. Well, where do they go in between? Some of those birds in between are ending up in places like Golden Gate Park, right? Or in California's Central Valley. I'm referring to California because that's where I live uh, in this intensely agricultural landscape. And so for those creatures, they're experiencing all of these places in different ways. And so it turns out that urban areas, which we tend to think of as being largely apart from, from nature, are vitally connected to it in all sorts of ways, including animals that pass through them on their migratory pathways. Yeah, I, I am married to a birder, and we often find ourselves in uh, very interesting places uh, to find <laughs> uh, species that are migrating. Right? We often find ourselves, you know, on you know next to like some large puddle behind like a Safeway or something, or near you know a garbage compactor because there's lots of food one could pluck from, you know, sort of human waste. Um, so well, to I, quote to quote Jeff Goldblum, life finds a way. It really does. Um, <laughs> and and I, th- I think both in this book and in, in our conversation, you were you sort of hinting at, right, what humans define as urban uh, is not necessarily how sort of wildlife broadly conceived, uh, d- you know, see something as urban, right? Like th- there's not necessarily that distinction. Um Perhaps in the most sort of reconstructed spaces, you know, where humans have just turned everything into sort of a c- concrete jungle, if you will, M- maybe then, you know, there's there's sort of a, a obvious signals to a variety of species that you should move on and not even engage. Uh, but I, I think you rightfully point out that we need to sort of define what we mean by urban in this context or even wildlife, um, because sort of the the accidental ecosystem uh, is is created and sort of the unintended consequences, right? They follow. Yeah, you know, if you say something like uh, something like you said a minute ago. Uh, you know, that's something like 82% uh, of, of Americans live in cities. To generate that kind of a statistic, you have to make boundaries, right? You have to draw a line around what counts as a city and what doesn't. 
And we do that in a variety of ways. The um, Census Bureau has, has ways in which they do that. Uh, and that's changed over time. Scientists, geographers have ways in which they do that. Uh, but for, for wild creatures, uh, there are no real boundaries in the landscape. There are boundaries certainly between different kinds of habitats or landforms. Uh, but there aren't boundaries between different kinds of um, theoretical designations. And so the way they experience these places, um, in addition to the um, this kind of habitat idea of costs and benefits and risks and opportunities, is they experience urban areas as kind of a continuum, right? And so if you go downtown to like take a city that has this, these kind of concentric rings of development going outward from the center, like Chicago, at least in a half circle, uh, if you go to downtown Chicago in the loop, you know, incredibly dense uh, uh, human uh, occupation, lots of built structures, very little greenery right in the center, uh, hard surfaces, uh, lots of smells, lots of sounds, lots of chemicals, all these sorts of things. Um, but as you go outward from there, you encounter different kinds of configurations of environments with different levels of greenery different kinds of uh, plants, different um, levels of kind of human activity during night and and during the daytime, uh, different kinds of built structures, right? And so these are kind of the continua that animals encounter as they move from more rural to more urban areas. And there's just an enormous variety of that in the American landscape and in the landscapes of of cities uh, and urban regions and other parts of the world. And so understanding it in that way also helps us to see maybe why some animals can make it to the urban core where others can't, but they might be found uh, in suburbs. And then there are some who can't even uh, really occupy the suburbs, and they would be the ones that would be found uh, almost always further out in rural areas or wildlands. Yeah, I I was struck... um... In this book and in, in some other sort of related reading, uh, that the, the suburb has sort of turned into this place that uh, may, maybe should be more appreciated um, for those at least who who care about ecosystems, who care about wildlife, because while they may be right these these spaces that are easy to sort of critique for all sorts of reasons, uh, they they do support <laughs> all sorts of wildlife populations um, in ways that I I think are underappreciated. You know, the, the image of the, the sort of bleak 1950s post-war suburb, I mean, my father is from New York. He grew up in Levittown, you know, the, the, the quintessential uh, post-war suburb. And initially, you know, those places um, were often not places that, that replaced natural habitats. They usually, those early suburbs often replaced farmlands, and some of them still do. Uh, because farms were built, you know, the, the kind of most valuable crop producing farms were often close to cities at that point um, because of transportation costs. Uh, but those places started out, you know, among the most uh, segregated uh, of spaces humankind had ever developed, both in terms of, of people, uh, in terms of ethnic and racial segregation and gender segregation as well, uh, at least during the day. Uh, but also in terms of uh, the separation of people from from nature and from wildlife. Those were extremely bleak uh, kinds of places for wildlife. But over time, uh, many suburbs have developed in different ways. They've become leafier. They've um, been developed around new designs that include uh, greenways, that include restored or preserved um, uh, creeks, water drainages for flood control, uh, big parks, you know, all of these sorts of things, uh, preserving wetlands in some cases. 
all these sorts of landscape features that in some ways have allowed the creatures that do really well in the urban areas, very urban areas, to sort of mingle with some of the creatures that do better in rural areas in this zone of overlap um, that we know as the suburbs that border with the kind of urban wildland um, interface in places where you can see that on the landscape. The urban wildland interface is not as clear on the East Coast um, because of the geography of that region as it is in cities on the West Coast. Uh, but still, for some creatures, these, the suburbs or the urban wildland interface is kind of this Goldilocks zone where they can harvest resources from the city, but they can take cover uh, in the greenery of the country. Yeah, yeah. You know, a- animals are, are resilient, uh, both humans <laughs> and other animals. And I think you make that point again and again um, that we, we all want to survive, right? And we, we will do what we can to survive, whether it's in the suburbs or the city or the exurbs or rural areas or farms or, you know, elsewhere. Or God forbid, commuting. Right. Right. Uh, you know, some some creatures um, have to well adopt a lifestyle where they commute. Uh, they take cover during the daytime uh, in wildland areas uh, outside cities. And then during the nighttime, maybe they forage, uh, you know, inside some of those suburbs where there's a lot of food and water uh, where they can kind of uh, wander around in the evening without too many people around relatively safely. And so that's one of the kinds of behavioral adaptations that some creatures have developed. Indeed. And for better or for worse, they've probably adapted in that way because of, of humans and, you know, us being at the, the, the top of the, uh, the predatory <laughs> list. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, so, so in the introduction, you pose the following questions, uh, quote, why have so many cities, the most artificial and human dominated of all of sorry, of all Earth's ecosystems, grown rich with wildlife, even as wildlife has faded from most of the rest of the world. And what does this paradox mean for cities, people, wildlife, and nature on our increasingly urban planet? So you pose those questions, and you you also say that the recent explosion of wildlife in American cities is one of the greatest ecological ecological success stories since the dawn of conservation. So if you could sort of answer (laughs) both the questions, but also sort of justify that, that claim, because I I think some of our listeners, some of your readers, um, they will, they they might concede that point, but they also might really push back against that because it's, it does seem counterintuitive. Yeah, sure. Well, let's, let's take them a little bit one by one here. So the question of why have so many cities grown rich with wildlife even as wildlife has faded from much of the rest of the world. Um, You know, that comes from both the work I did for this book on urban ecosystems, uh, but also um, the fact that uh, leading up to the pandemic, uh, a series of studies came out, meta-level studies, um, as well as studies of particular systems, showing that uh, in many cases, wildlife populations, even many populations that have been considered secure, Uh, just uh, years earlier, uh, had undergone significant declines. I mean, we have studies showing that um, uh, something like 60% of the world's uh, wildlife populations, uh, vertebrate wildlife populations, have declined. We had had a study uh, showing that, uh, according to to large-scale data sets, uh, North America had lost something like 30% of its birds. 
We've had a number of studies, although this is still very much a debate, suggesting that insect populations have declined uh, significantly and maybe even catastrophically. That's a subject of intense research now, uh, and, and like I said, debate. And then studies looking at looking at particular systems like the Amazon, for example, showing that you know these these places are getting close to, to tipping points in which they they could shift into uh, very different looking kinds of ecosystems in the future. Um, there'll be a tremendous departure from today and have possibly global ramifications. And so, you know, this is all going on uh, in the years leading up to the to pandemic at the same time that uh, people are really recognizing and observing the fact that so many more creatures are showing up in, in, in cities that they hadn't seen there uh, years or, or decades earlier. And so, you know, to answer this question, um, part of it is that creatures are adapting Part of it is that there have been changes in human society that have enabled creatures to um, to inhabit these spaces. A big part of it, though, is that people have made decisions, particularly in the United States, people have made decisions uh, about uh, urban areas, about their design, about their structure, about you know, laws and zoning, these sorts of things that were really not intended to facilitate wildlife, but had the unexpected consequence of allowing some creatures to either return or to show up for the first time in many cities. And so that's why the book is called The Accidental Ecosystem. It's really saying that until recently, most people weren't really trying to facilitate wildlife in cities. They weren't trying to conserve wildlife in cities, but they were making decisions that eventually enabled many creatures to to come back or um, or to appear for the first time. In terms of what this paradox means, uh, I think it means a, a lot of things. One thing it means is that we have a lot to learn. You know, there are creatures that uh, we thought we understood pretty well from a scientific perspective that have shown us through their uh, ability to adapt to urban life that we actually <laughs> know very little about their capacity uh, for flexibility, for adaptation, for living in different ways and their relationships between uh, their individual selves, their populations, and the ecosystems in which they have it, inhabit. So that's one thing. But I think we also um, can look at urban ecosystems as a sort of harbinger, in a way, for uh, what the, the world is increasingly looking like in the Anthropocene. Uh, you know, as the world becomes more urbanized, as uh, the human footprint uh, on ecosystems around the world increases, as climate change transforms uh, places uh, and regions, I think what we're seeing is more and more what are called really kind of human-dominated ecosystems, even though that's not maybe exactly the right word, but something like that. And so if we think of urban areas, which still only cover something like 3% of the world's ice-free land surface, as harbingers for a future in which increasingly we're going to see more human-dominated ecosystems, then I think we can learn a lot from what's going on in cities about how to try to coexist with wildlife and to facilitate conservation, biological diversity, um, and wild creatures on a planet that is increasingly dominated by people. Uh, And so that's, you know, I think that that's part of the story, but uh, I think that another part is that, you know, we can look at the creatures themselves, but I think we should also look at the the people. And I think that, you know, seeing people's reactions to this, 
uh, has been absolutely fascinating for me. One of the things I start off at the very beginning of the book saying is that one of the the uh, most fascinating parts of this project for me, and one of the things I, I ended up getting the most joy out of in writing this book, was that for the past you know six years or so, whenever I told anyone I was working on a book about urban wildlife, what I got in response almost invariably was a story. People would tell me their own story, their own urban wildlife story, their own bobcat on a bike path story. And these stories had a lot of different themes. They involved a lot of different creatures, but often it was people uh, on the one hand, maybe complaining or worrying a little bit, but also being sort of amazed and wanting to know more. And so I think there's a desire to know about the creatures that we live with and to be able to live with them in a way that promotes coexistence and enables us to, to kind of all, all live together in a better way. And so seeing that was something that was really um, encouraging for me at a time when I saw a lot of things to not be particularly encouraged about. And so uh, those are just some of the lessons that, that I learned um, from writing this book and some of the ways that I can hopefully answer those questions. Yeah, you've anticipated a number of my questions, so I will <laughs> I, I will go sort of in order. Um, so, so what what's wildlife species have thrived um, or thrive the most in urban environments, and and which have not? Right, I I, th- I think there's 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 many pieces to this story, right? It's very easy to have sort of a positivist frame. There are certainly some species that have really done well. Um, you know, I think of like the coyote, right? The yeah, You referenced uh, Dan Flores' work and, and other uh, scholars' work on coyotes. And, and I have been convinced that the coyotes, as long as humans are alive, the coyotes will be alive because we pair so well together. We have perhaps co-evolved in ways that are sort of under, underappreciated. Um, so, so which, which species have thrived and which, which have not in these urban environments? So about 20 years ago, a um, scholar who's based at uh, Stanford at that time came up with uh, a kind of very simple typology uh, of kinds of species in urban environments. And so I'm going to tell you about it a little bit now, tell you about his, his concept. Keep in mind that it's obviously a very simplified version. There are lots of different varieties of this, and there there are ways in which this changes over time. But this is like a a good way to start thinking about it. So what he said is he said that uh, there are three kinds of species relative to urban environments. There are urban exploiters. Urban exploiters are creatures. There aren't that many of them, but there are some, and we, we all know them. They do really well in urban environments, and they tend to live in cities around the world, right? And so maybe there's a little bit of variation uh, on which one exactly, but they're closely related and you see them wherever you go. And so examples of these urban exploiters, creatures that just do really well in cities are like crows, pigeons, rats, those kinds of creatures. They tend to have a few things in common. They tend to be, um, they tend to be very social. They have an easy time living around large numbers of their own species. They tend to be Uh, just wary enough of people to avoid us, but not too wary to have to avoid the city entirely. They tend to be relatively intelligent compared to, or at least have relatively large brains. Uh, Intelligence is a difficult thing to quantify, Uh, but they tend to have relatively large brains relative to uh, other members of their own uh, taxonomic group. Uh, And crucially, they tend to be omnivores. 
which goes along with the bigger brain thing oftentimes. It means you can eat a lot of different kinds of foods, so you can harvest different kinds of resources that are available. And it also tends to mean that you're willing to be a little bit more experimental. Because if you have a very broad diet, then it pays to try different kinds of food uh, with the sense that there is some risk to that. But there can also be a benefit from expanding your diet and finding new forms of, of nutrition and energy. So those are the urban exploiters. The urban adapters, this is a second group, are creatures that aren't really totally at home in urban areas, but they do occur in cities, sometimes in large numbers, in places where they are able to access the um, resources of the city, but also take refuge in greener spaces. And so examples of this might be foxes, uh, red foxes, or um, raccoons, or skunks, or a variety of raptors uh, that you might see in urban areas, or some large wading water birds like blue herons that now are in every body of water, it seems like, uh, around every city. And so these are urban adapters. They can do well in and around cities as long as they have some uh, greenness uh, to take refuge in. The third group is the urban avoiders. The urban avoiders are creatures that do really poorly in urban areas almost all the time for a bunch of different reasons. One reason may be that they require very large home ranges. Another reason may be that they have habits that just don't um, ingratiate them with people. Um, there are a lot of different reasons for this. Another reason may be just because they're intolerant of some aspect of the urban environment. Maybe it's the uh, olfactory environment, the smells in a city, or maybe it's uh, the auditory environment, the noises of a city. And so creatures like this are oftentimes uh, large-bodied animals, uh, like mountain lions or you know grizzly bears. I mean, there are grizzly bears now in and around Jackson, Wyoming, but you're not going to find them in and around Philadelphia. And there's a reason for that, right? And so those are the three kinds of creatures um, that, we, that we think about. There's a lot of variety and these can change. One thing I want to point out is that uh, there are relatively few urban exploiters. Most creatures find cities, um, they're intolerant of cities and they avoid cities. The urban exploiters, there are lots of them, but there is not a lot of diversity of them. So there may be a lot of individual crows, but... There's not a lot of diversity of creatures like that that are that good at living in urban areas. But if you look at the urban exploiters in particular, they have qualities like being social, living around large numbers of their own, being relatively big brained, uh, rearing and teaching their young. So they tend to have cultures, omnivorous. Brady, what does that sound like? Perhaps a coyote? <laughs> Well, yes, it sounds like a coyote, but it also sounds like people. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, right. I, I just, yes. my mind goes. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. It does sound like coyote, but it also sounds like people. And so when we think about like rats, right? I mean, there's a reason that rats are used as model organisms in biomedical research. There's a bunch of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is that they're kind of enough like us to make experiments on them relatively useful. Some rat species that do well in urban environments also have qualities that enable them to live in cities that in some ways, and I know a lot of people in your audience probably don't want to hear this. They don't want to tune into your podcast and have some professor tell them that they're like rats, but they have qualities that enable them to do well in urban environments, which in some ways, social, being social, being cultural, being omnivorous are like people. 
this is why I emphasize coyotes because yes, rats are a good stand in, but I think more people are (laughs) interested in comparing themselves to coyotes than rats. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Um, So I I know some of your previous work focused on endangered species. Um, So I will ask this question. It's a big question. Maybe not one that is answered by your work yet, but maybe one you've, you've thought about. So, so what would be required of humans to intentionally support an explosion of a diversity, emphasis on diversity of wildlife in areas uh, beyond the urban environment, but also the urban environment? Because I think you rightfully point out, right, that there's not much diversity in these urban environments, but perhaps there could be with some changes, um, you know, in human behavior. Right. That's, that is a huge question. And I just, I would like to say that, you know, for the conservationists and land managers and scientists and um, citizens who are engaged in trying to conserve rare and endangered species that live in and around urban areas, those are some of the toughest jobs around. (laughs) Um, You know, I really admire those people. That's incredibly difficult work. And the, the most difficult part of it is just oftentimes is dealing with the community because there are so many different interests in the places where these creatures live here in the community where, where I live and work in Southern California, the university owns a plot of land that we use as a a nature reserve and a research station close to campus. It's got a beach. It's got a popular uh, beach and surf break there. Uh, It's got a wetland. Um, and it's also got some dunes, and uh, there's a species of bird, a uh, small shorebird called the snowy plover, that nests there. And uh, they're federally listed as a threatened species. And uh, the reserve manager has been trying to protect these birds that nest on the beach for uh, 20 years. And she's done amazing work with the community and with the species and with other species that compete with, or in some cases, prey on, on these plovers. Um, but it's just a, a continual challenge. Um, and so a lot of uh, admiration goes out to those people who are doing that really hard work. I think if we want to we want to think about um, urban regions and how to maintain and even enrich biodiversity in urban regions, we can think on two levels. One is the level of the community uh, in terms of governance, and the other is the level of the individual in terms of behavior. At the community level, in the United States, most land use planning happens at the county level. And this is the result of a a history, right? And so at the county level, counties are required to produce general plans. A general plan is a uh, complex document with multiple elements that includes uh, sections, chapters, on everything from um, transportation to education to housing to flood control to parks and recreation, the whole suite of things that that cities and and counties have to to manage and fund and deal with. To date, wildlife is only considered incidentally in these plans. And I know the last thing a county commissioner wants to hear, again, you know, and it probably maybe even less than, you know, you have something in common with rats, is add another element to the county general plan. But what I can say is that if you start to think about wildlife, animals move around. They use different kinds of spaces in different ways. Uh, They occupy spaces that have other kinds of values that in some cases are commensurate. 
if we start at this local and county level as communities to think about where wildlife falls in these plans, then we can actually start to um, uh, to bend the curve, I think, in a way that makes communities more livable for wild creatures and for people. And so just let me give you a very quick example of that, which is that a lot of communities have found that some of the most important areas in the community for wildlife are stream corridors, where creeks run through or rivers run through uh, the town, the city, the county. Uh, those areas are often also governed by flood control restrictions, and in some cases have been in the past modified uh, to sh- you know, shoot water out to the <laughs> to the sea, for example, right as a flood control measure. When we restore these systems and when we conserve them, we find that we increase uh, water infiltration. Uh, we increase uh, the greenness of the area. We provide uh, opportunities for recreation for people along the river, and we prevent uh, haphazard or hazardous development from occurring within the floodplain of the creek. Meanwhile, we're also conserving some of the most valuable wildlife habitat in the area. So communities that have adopted those kinds of approaches have made huge strides uh, in this kind of thing. And it's the sort of thing you don't have to be like a liberal or an environmentalist or anything to see that that makes sense. Right. Uh, so that's that's one thing. And that's at the community level. In terms of the individual level, for people who own uh, property, who own homes uh, or for people who are involved in any kind of uh, whether it's community gardening or um, volunteering in parks or trails, any of that kind of stuff. The the way in which you go about that, the decisions you make, for example, planting um, vegetation around uh, your home or the apartment complex where you live. Uh, or engaging with the community about what kinds of street trees it's planting, for example. Those sorts of things, those sorts of behaviors that are often individual choices uh, around people's homes, for example, can make a big difference for wildlife. If you're planting you know, some mix of native species that attract pollinators, for example, uh, or provide uh, some other kind of wildlife benefit, for example, through providing nesting habitat or food, that sort of thing, Uh, then you're benefiting wildlife. And if you go even further, then you can start to think about, okay, well, what kind of creatures do I want around me and what kind of creatures do I want fewer of around me? So let's say maybe we want more owls and we want fewer rats. Those two goals can go together very easily. (laughs) And one way they can go together is to provide nesting habitat for owls around urban areas uh, that enable these uh, really efficient nocturnal predators to inhabit our urban areas in a way that gives people a lot of uh, pleasure, interest, engagement, educational opportunities, and also helps to control some of the pests that we might not want around our homes. And so there are opportunities both at the community level and at the individual level. And I think one of the things that I try to make clear in this book is that there there are just a tremendous amount of, uh, of opportunities in communities for people to do something now. We've learned a lot. And maybe it's time to move a little bit more from the accidental ecosystem of urban areas in the past to a more intentional ecosystem where we're actually thinking through these issues. 
Yeah, for for all the uh, Harry Potter fans out there and fans of owls in general, uh, <laughs> rats are what the number one food source for uh, for our owl friends. So they yeah. can be in they can be in certain uh, environments. I'll tell you what, you know, several years ago uh, we had a pair of great horned owls that nested in a Canary Island date palm tree across the the street from my house. Um, they had three chicks. Uh, one did not make it, but two fledged. Uh, and during that time, um, we found a lot of, of, um, rodent parts, uh, around our home that were clearly the result of, uh, nighttime predation by, by owls. And so it was, you know, watching these chicks grow up and fledge was this whole community thing. People bonded around it. They loved it. And we got the benefit of, of maybe having fewer rats around, around the, the neighborhood. Yeah, a win-win situation. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, so I would argue owls are charismatic species. Um, certainly bears are a charismatic species. Uh, you talk a bit about the resurgence of, I believe, the black bear population in New Jersey and um, also in, in nearby Pennsylvania and, and New York. Um, so <laughs> sort of segueing and sort of focusing again on sort of st- uh, stories and characters in this book. Um, c- could you tell our listeners uh, who was Petals the bear? Uh, why did his New York Times obituary, uh, one, why was it written <laughs> and what did it say about him? And then um, sort of stepping back a little bit, uh, what would an urban wildlife ethic look like, um, which you sort of introduce around this discussion of bears? Yeah, yeah. So um, before I talk about petals, I'll just say that um, one of my other projects, my sort of big project right now is that for the past many years and continuing, uh, I've been the leader of a group that's looking at um, taking a fresh look at the at the history and also possible future return of brown bears or, or grizzly bears in California. Uh, the grizzly bear is on our state flag. It's our official mascot, but it's been considered extinct here for almost a century. Uh, and so, uh, and actually just last week I was in Alaska. I got to go to Katmai National Park and see brown bears feeding on the beach um, in great numbers, uh, kind of an amazing experience. Um, Brown bears are listed as, as threatened in the lower 48 U.S. states, uh, but black bears are not. And as a matter of fact, uh, there are about something like 900,000 uh, or more uh, American black bears uh, in North America right now. Uh, they are by far the most numerous of the eight currently existing bear species. Uh, there are something like double the number of American black bears as all the rest of the bears in the world combined. Uh, and their numbers, uh, which were kind of bottomed out by the early 20th century, have increased dramatically over the past 40 or 50 years. So that there are many states now that have uh, two times, three times, four times the number of black bears they had in, say, 1980. And there are a few places that have many, many, many times the number of black bears they had uh, just you know a few decades ago. Uh, one of those places is New Jersey. If you go back to the 1960s, uh, there were maybe a couple dozen black bears in New Jersey. Now there are several thousand. Uh, and as a matter of fact, New Jersey is now the most densely populated state in the U.S., both for people and for, for bears. Uh, and so this is a, you know, if, if your listeners haven't heard that before, 
Um, this is a relatively recent development, and um, it's a it's a fast moving situation. It's a tremendous transformation over just the course of, of uh, maybe four or five decades. And so, in in New Jersey, uh, there's been a a pretty um, intense debate in recent years that's involved intervention several times by governors of New Jersey. That's involved uh, protests and conflicts, um, a lot of uh, conflict over social media. Uh, and in the press. Um, but it's it's really a question of how to uh, coexist with, how to live with bears in a state where there were very few in the not too distant past, uh, and where a lot of people live in, in um, densely populated uh, neighborhoods and towns and communities. And so Petals um, was a bear that uh, in the 2010s, several years ago, uh, appeared in um, in New Jersey, in the suburbs, um, and uh, he he caught the eye and the the um, concern and uh, admiration of many people because he he was an odd animal. He was either deformed or or had experienced some series of injuries, uh, but then lived through them. And so instead of walking on all fours um, like a normal black bear, and then occasionally maybe standing up. Uh, on his hind legs to get a better view, Petals uh, walked around uh, on his hind legs, and one of his front paws was um, bent or or deformed. And so, if you, when the first people started to see him walking through the suburbs, uh, he looked like a kind of suburban Sasquatch. I mean, from a distance, you know, it was hard to tell if it was a a, a bear walking like a person or if it was a person in a bear suit. You know, it was kind of difficult to tell. And so, um, he caught the attention of people. He became famous. Uh, some people called for him to be brought into a sanctuary and given veterinary care. The state department of uh, wildlife there in New Jersey, um, uh, declined to do that because they said he's a member of a population that we manage as a resource, not, not as, you know, a collection of individuals. Uh, and then ultimately, Petals, um, after several years um, of making his way around these communities, uh, was, was shot and killed during one of New Jersey's annual bear hunts, uh, which was the subject of a lot of controversy. And so uh, later, at the end of that year, um, there was an obituary published uh, on him in the New York Times and its annual obituaries, alongside, um, I think, Antonin Scalia that year, and Prince, and Gwen Ifill, and uh, folks who had passed away, uh, media figures, figures of politics and entertainment and journalism who had passed away that year. The author was this was a uh, John Mualam, who's a wonderful author, and is trying to reflect on on what this animal meant uh, to people and what it meant to uh, to um, you know to human wildlife coexistence. And I guess what I'll what I'll say about this is that. Um, it means a couple things. One of the things it means is that um, people uh, do tend to focus on animals that are large and charismatic and have some, you know, features of them that remind that remind these uh, people of themselves. Uh, you know, with bears, I have to say that that is a, not an aberration. That's actually the norm uh, for the past many tens of thousands of years throughout the northern hemisphere. Indigenous people from Siberia to Finland to here in California have viewed bears as kin, as their literal kin. Uh, and so this is actually more of a norm in human history than, than an aberration. Uh, but it is a bit unusual today to, to, to see that. 
but also, you know, when an animal gets named and it becomes a stand-in for others of its kind, uh, I think that that suggests that um, there's a debate ha- being had about what exactly these creatures are. And so for some people, uh, the bears of New Jersey, the black bears of New Jersey, or the brown bears of, of Alaska uh, are a population. They're a resource to be managed for the benefit of people. And uh, you manage them in a variety of ways and benefit includes hunting, for example. Uh, For other people, they may be more like individuals. And when they become more like individuals, when they get a name, then they either start to seem more like pets or in some cases start to achieve something even more like personhood, uh, which, you know, has some kind of component of individuality to it. And so uh, there are different claims being made about this. And I think that this is one of the one of the changes that we're seeing as people debate who are and what are these charismatic animals that are increasingly inhabiting our communities alongside of us. I'll say one other thing, which is that um, hunting in particular is a um, not only the goal, uh, one of the traditional goals of conservation of some species, but is also traditionally a tool of conservation. In other words, you use hunting as a way of managing populations. This doesn't work well in urban areas for some reasons that are probably pretty obvious. Uh, Most cities in the U.S. do not allow the discharge of firearms, for example, inside their boundaries, Um, and a variety of other reasons uh, why uh, hunting in general in urban areas is, is not something that's done. Uh, in addition to the fact that most people don't don't want it, they don't want trapping or or even bow hunting as well in their in their neighborhoods, which can be quite dangerous um, uh, as well, particularly if you have traffic around or, or children or pets. And so, um, you know, we're at a point where many of the old ideas about animals uh, no longer hold in some of these communities, and many of the tools that have been developed to manage them as conservation targets as resources, as populations over time are becoming less useful within these spaces. And so um, I think the story of petals tells us a lot about transformations in the relationship between people and wildlife. Yeah. After, after reading that section, um, I, I just really uh, wanted to read the John McPhee sort of biography on petals and, <laughs> and the, uh, the black bear resurgence in his home state of New Jersey. I just think it's, it's ripe uh, territory for not just the John Wellams of the world, but uh, you know, John McPhee, since it's his home state, it just seems, seems right up his alley, but I, I recognize he is, he is uh, yes, he's long in the tooth. So, so we'll see if he continues to write. <laughs> um, so, so you you heard a lot of stories during the research uh, and writing of this book. Um, is is there a story that sticks out to you about sort of urban wildlife uh, that was shared with you? Oh wow, um, that was shared with me by by folks that I've spoken with um, along the way. Yes, oh, indeed, there are so many so many good ones. Um, you know, well, I'll t- I'll tell you this one. Um, Early in the process of writing this book, I was speaking with potential publishers of it, and I met with an editor um, at a conference, and I sat down with her. I had never met her in person. We had only corresponded over email, and she um, was a very senior, very well-established editor, um, had guided um, 
shepherded through a lot of really great projects, very respected person in her field. And that's really all I knew about her. Uh, I did know that she lived in the Northeast. And I started telling her about the book and she's sitting there looking at me and kind of nodding her head as I go through and she's nodding her head. And, and I finish my pitch and she says, well, I had a deer that was eating all of my garden and I had a, I hired a bow hunter to come in and kill it with a bow in my yard. And it turned into a really big deal because the bow hunter took a shot, hit it. And what often happens um, in bow hunting uh, is that the animal does not pass immediately. Uh, it runs. And so this is one of the reasons that bow hunting can be dangerous in urban areas is that now you have an injured, um, terrified animal uh, running through a suburb. Um, and so this is, this is what happened. And so she told me this story. And um, at that moment, I, I realized that um, these weren't just stories that I was hearing about people seeing a cute fox and wondering why it was there or having a hawk land on their, you know, uh, their, their deck or, you know, something like that. This was a story about someone who, um, was trying to, to cultivate nature, you know, in their, around their home was trying to live with it, trying to bring some beauty to their surroundings and had tried, you know, a variety of different um, tactics finally got to the point where they were willing to, um, dispatch this animal, uh, which was probably not an easy decision to come to in that context, and then had it kind of blow up on them and upset a lot of their neighbors in the process. And so it became eventually a story about people and people, not just um, uh, this individual and um, and her garden and this and this deer. And so I, I think when you hear stories like that, um, it's important to remember that when we interact with animals. Um, it invokes a whole other kind of social system. And it's not just about interacting with animals. It's about interacting with a whole community, including our human neighbors, including um, a variety of other people who might be, might be involved. And so um, it takes this issue from being one that seems like a little bit of a niche issue sometimes, um, or one that's mere, merely a curiosity, uh, to, to a question about how we really live rightly with nature and how we really make life or death decisions like this. Yes, try as we might, uh, we humans need to recognize that we too live inside uh, ecosystems and we are a part of those ecosystems. <laughs> um, we cannot extricate ourselves from them. Um, but obviously, it's it's very easy to forget that when you are at the top of the food chain and you are sort of the, the dominant species. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, so to close, uh, I would like to touch on a part of the book that really struck me, um, and I think it is appropriately in your coda. Um, could you describe the common cup nests that your friend discovered? Um, I guess it was at a local beach in Santa Barbara, and, and they discovered it and you know encouraged you to come by uh, and shared it with you, and then you sort of picked at it and really tried to understand what was uh, a part of this co this common cup nest. Um, and, and why was it so significant to you that you described it uh, and chose to include it in your coda? Well, you know, Brady, would you like me to, to read that paragraph? That would be wonderful. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So this is the paragraph where I, um, after I had, um, a friend of mine had found this nest, she had called me and said, you got to come down here and check this out. It had fallen out of a tree. 
And so um, then I bring it back to my, to my home. And this is where this, this one paragraph uh, begins. The next day I sat down at my kitchen table to catalog the materials the nest contained. There were needles from Italian stone pines, fibers from the trunks of Canary Island date palms, and twigs from Australian eucalyptus trees, as well as lichens, feathers, and grasses from species native to Europe and Asia. The nest also contained brown wool, blue, sp- blue string, and yarn in purple, orange, yellow, white, and black. I found scraps of napkins and paper towels, along with several cigarette butts, which have antimicrobial properties that may deter some nest parasites. There was aluminum foil and a swatch of gray-stitched nylon that looked like it had once been part of a tent. There were half a dozen straw sleeves, both paper and plastic, and the kind of synthetic filling used to stuff pillows. The tinsel was a nice touch. And so... um, this, this, this nest, the reason it really um, struck me is because this was during the early days of the pandemic. I was trying to uh, make sense. Um, well, this was one of the first times I went out of my house. <laughs> it was in the spring of 2020. This was uh, me trying to kind of make sense of a lot of things, including the fact that at, the, at this late process in writing this book, suddenly for a few precious, weird, bizarre, tragic weeks, at the beginning of the pandemic, the whole world seemed to be talking about urban wildlife. Um, and so uh, I, I think what the nest signifies to me is it was probably made by just an American robin, which I think is the, the third or fourth most uh, common bird in North America. Uh, very common in urban areas, of course. Uh, we're all familiar with them. But I think that the, the nest really um, spoke to the adaptability of these animals, the flexibility of these animals, uh, the, their ability to um, harvest uh, the refuse of human society, of, of people's resources that they cast away, and to use them in creative, inventive, um, and productive ways. And the nest itself was sort of really this... Um, Incredibly beautiful. I call it a um, a collage in the form of a cradle. Um, this incredibly beautiful piece of kind of modern architecture, in a way, that combined aspects of nature and culture in this beautiful little little package. And so I, I say after that paragraph that um, you know, in a way, it was a, it was an incredibly humbling experience because I realized that that this nest in some ways said more about urban wildlife than this, than this entire book that I'd been writing for the previous five years. Uh, but it also distilled what I was trying to get at, which is that in these spaces, in these multi-species habitats, these shared habitats, in these communities, nature and culture combine in unexpected and creative ways. And I think that it is um, incumbent on us to sort of recognize that and to foster that and to facilitate that in more intentional ways. And that is something that can benefit all of us. And so um, maybe we have a lesson to learn from the robin who can build a nest out of yarn and cigarette butts and tinsel. Well, Peter Algona, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Brady. It's been great. This concludes another episode of the New Books Network.